0: We are looking at 1 Peter 3.18, and we will read down to the end of the chapter to verse 22. And um, keep in mind as we come into this passage tonight that the context has been, uh, Peter has been encouraging those who have been dispersed, they are suffering for the name of Christ, they are struggling with afflictions, they are surprised to some extent by why they're being persecuted. Peter tells them at one point, Don't be surprised by the fiery trial, which is to try you. He tells them in chapter 1, remember, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the testing of your faith may produce perseverance. And you see that Peter is urging them on, and we've seen in this study so far that Peter is telling them that it's possible. In Christ by the gospel to live as a Christian in any situation no matter how difficult and that we have to live in the world that is not the world that we want it to be and Peter is reminding them that they are pressing on to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled and that does not fade away in heaven and he has most recently been telling them how to conduct themselves while they suffer in this world wishing that they were in the world to come and now he tells them in verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And then it might be better translated, verse 19, by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to To him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, we have come to what is arguably one of the most difficult and hotly debated passages in the Bible. It's one I was telling someone before this service. I'm glad that 10 years ago I had the time to do the exegetical work and to study this passage because I would never have the time to sift through all the opinions and all the literature and all the articles and all the lectures and all the writings throughout church history. Dissertations have been written on verse 18, not to mention the thorny question of what does it mean? Baptism now saves you. And you almost get the sense that what Peter is doing in these few verses is trying to give Paul a run for his money. In writing things that are difficult to understand because Peter remember says that about Paul many things that our brother Paul says are difficult to understand that untaught and unstable men twist to their own destruction and you might think that Peter is trying to give Paul a run for his money and you might think Peter we have been tracking with you so well for so long why why do you have to tell us that Jesus preached to spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah, and that baptism saves us. Why do you have to tell us that? Martin Luther very wisely in his commentary on 1 Peter says, this is a wonderful text, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know with any certainty just what Peter means. And then he goes on to tell you exactly what he thinks Peter means, which is wonderful. Luther's Wonderful false humility. I don't know what he means, but here's what he can't mean, and here's what he does mean. What I want us to see this evening is that this passage is not meant to be one that we just intellectually play around with and we try to understand, well, who are the spirits and did Jesus go and did he go to hell after his resurrection and proclaim victory over the demons? Did he, did he preach to people that perish that are now in hell? Did he preach in the days of Noah? What does it mean that there's a correspondence between the waters of Noah and the waters of baptism? Because to rush to those issues, and we'll deal with them, But to rush to those issues is to miss the flow of the passage now you'll notice that on the surface what peter is very basically doing in verses 18 to 22 he is reminding us of the victorious redemptive work of jesus he is in a sense saying to the people is it worth it is the suffering worth it how can you endure because you have a savior who has notice verse 18 died for our sins And then obviously been buried, and then verse 19, he's been made alive, the end of verse 18, he was made alive, he was raised from the dead. And then in verse 21, again we're told about the resurrection of Jesus, and then verse 22, the ascension of Jesus. And so, not wanting to miss the forest from the trees, basically Peter's telling them that Jesus has won redemption for them that Jesus has suffered in the flesh and that good has come out of that and that we are the beneficiaries of the good of Jesus's suffering in this world. That's that's the overarching point of 1 Peter 3:18 to 22. The question has been How are we to live in this world, and is it worth it? And Peter has repeatedly told the people that there is blessing on the other side of suffering and that we are called to bless others even when they persecute us and that we are to go through the trials and the affliction and the burdens and the fiery trials that we endure in this life knowing that on the other side there is blessing and God will inevitably bring good out of it. And ultimately, the great answer to that is not some fatalistic view or some uh, naive optimism that says, well, I know it's all just going to work together for you, but Peter says, look at Jesus. And look what happened to Jesus. The just was put to death for the unjust. It's remarkable that there's a sense almost in which you you can hear Peter saying to these people, you know, don't forget what you are by nature because they're suffering unjustly. But they're sinful. They are the very ones. We are the very ones for whom the just one suffered unjustly because we are unjust by nature, because we are unrighteous by nature. Uh, in a sense, Peter is safeguarding against a view in which in which the, the believers who are suffering here would not look out at others and say, well, they're unjust, they're hurting us, they're unrighteous, and we're righteous. And there's a sense where Peter is reminding them that there's really only one who suffered unjustly. You know, it was, I've told you this, Rabbi Kushner who wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And it was John Gerstner who responded by writing the book, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? which is the right question. And actually, only one good person ever suffered unjustly, and that's Jesus. And I think Peter's telling, saying that. Peter's saying there's only one who truly and really suffered unjustly. Notice the way that he unpacks the gospel here. He says Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There was an end to the sufferings of Jesus. Remember the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 12. For the joy set before him. What was the joy? In bringing many sons to glory. Jesus knew but that by entering into this world and by subjecting himself to all the opposition and all the hostility and, and putting himself under the law of God and knowing that he would be made the curse of for us and knowing all that he would do he knew that one day he would be able to gather together all those that he redeemed and present them to his father so that from the death to the resurrection to the ascension of jesus and notice how peter ends this passage it's remarkable and and this is so important that we don't get lost in the details peter says christ suffered once for sins and then verse 22 now he is in heaven At the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. That was the ultimate end result of Jesus' suffering. He merited as the God-man authority over everything. He has been given, as Paul says, the name that is above every name. So, if you find yourself asking the question, is it worth it? Is my going through these sufferings worth? as a Christian, worth it. Peter would say, this is how worth it it is. It was worth it for God to become man, to suffer the just for the unjust, to bring us to, to God and to be exalted and to get the name that is above every name and to have all authority in heaven and earth given to him. And there's this little there's this little comfort embedded into what Peter writes. There's this little... This little comforting statement that Jesus has all authority over angels and over powers. You know, it was no doubt spiritual warfare that the Christians to whom Peter was writing, that they were experiencing that spiritual warfare. Later he'll say, your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We just sang tonight and i love that second line when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end of all my sin and there's this there's this little there's this little comfort comforting statement built in that jesus is even now over all angels and authorities and powers. It was rulers that were persecuting the first century church. How can I live as a Christian in an ungodly nation? How can Christians live in North Korea? How can Christians live in Syria? Because Jesus is over all of that, and one day he's going to judge the living and the dead. All authority's been given to him, and even if they suffer the severest persecutions now, Christ has already conquered He is already victorious. He will pour out all of his wrath and judgment on all opposition to all of his people. That's the comfort. And he did that by suffering. It's one of those questions in theology that you have to ask, well, couldn't there have been another way? Couldn't God have just just said, I'm going to save these people and I'm going to wipe these people out? No. 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 To the best of our understanding, God did not what God had to do, but it was the perfect scheme of redemption. It was necessary for God to uphold His righteousness. The just had to suffer for the unjust, because only a just person, who was infinite in His in His worth and dignity, the Lord Jesus, could suffer for the unrighteousness of his people. And only one, as we've talked about in weeks past, that was greater than the one that conquered man could come and have authority over the one that conquered man. And only one who is himself God over all who comes and humbles himself and becomes servant of servants. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That it was necessary for our redemption that God work these things out and brought them to rich fulfillment in the resurrection. But then secondly, and we do have to deal with the questions that arise out of this text, we have to ask the question, what what does Peter mean when he says in between the resurrection and the ascension, this little statement in verse 19, what does he mean that Christ was made alive in the spirit by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now you'll know, some of you, there are a litany of options. The first is that, um, that angels came and mated with uh, the, the daughters of men and that these hybrid angel people beings were created that roamed the earth and did a lot of violence and then God wiped the world out in a flood. I don't think that's what Genesis 6 teaches. It sounds like science fiction. There are a lot of people that believe that, and they think that Jesus at some point went and proclaimed his victory over these demonic angels that became hybrid angel people. Here's why I think that that's not tenable. I think, first of all, there's no judgment on the angels in the flood account. God is angry with men. The sons of God are, in my humble and yet hopefully accurate opinion, the descendants of Seth, that is the covenant line, the church of God, and the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain, and they intermarry. And God hates intermarriage because true religion is lost, and so he brings judgment on the world because his people have turned away from him, and violence has filled the earth. And then there's another opinion that what Peter is, is teaching here is that Jesus went uh, by the spirit and he preached through Noah to the men and women who were on the earth before the flood leading up to the flood who were destroyed in the flood. And that Noah, who we're told in 2 Peter 2.5 was a preacher of righteousness, was preaching by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is massive support for this position. Um, turn back to 1 Peter 1, 10 through Twelve, and notice what peter says there talking about the salvation in the old testament he says the old testament prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searching and inquiring carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ who is in them so peter's already told us in chapter 1 verse 10 it was the spirit of christ in the old testament prophets indicating that the messiah would come so very clearly, there's no argument there. One ten, Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets prophesying through them, preaching through them, and then notice what Peter says in verse 12, that now these things that have been fulfilled in Jesus have been announced to you through those who, notice what he says, preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So in First Peter 1 Peter 1.10-12, Peter's big point is that the Holy Spirit is, The Spirit of Christ was preaching through the Old Testament prophets, now preaching through the apostles and ministers in the New Covenant, that it's by the same Spirit, it's Christ spiritually proclaiming the gospel through his people, Old and New Testament. And so, what I find to be the most satisfying interpretation is that held by Augustine and Calvin and Luther, and a litany of other theologians throughout church history that all Peter's saying is that the Lord Jesus was made alive uh, by the Holy Spirit. He entered into the, the age of the Spirit. He was raised up as the glorified Christ, who he now pours out on his people and by whom now he preaches to his people. And it's the same Spirit that was preaching through Noah, To the men and women who were destroyed in the flood, it was Christ calling them to repentance, calling them to be saved, calling them. Have you ever thought about this? Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was not preaching against people. He was preaching so that they might be saved. And they rejected the gospel. Now, why would Peter introduce this very complex idea in the middle of a declaration about Jesus' sufferings And subsequent glories. Well, I think that what Peter is doing is he's finding affinity with and and some kind of solidarity with Noah. Remember, Peter is himself an apostle. He knows the Holy Spirit of Christ preaching through him. He knows what it is to be rejected by men. As we read the book of Acts, we see that Peter knows what it is to suffer. You almost get the sense that what Peter is doing is comforting himself as he teaches the congregation, and he's saying, listen, it was always this way. Men always rejected believers. They rejected Noah as a preacher of righteousness, but who they were really rejecting was the Christ who has given us victory. He is really teaching them. He's taking it right back to Christ, and he's saying, listen, The one that you're being persecuted for is the one who's redeemed you, and it's always been that way. And his spirit has always been calling men to himself, and his spirit has always been at work in the world. Now, secondly, why does he introduce the subject of baptism? You see this almost seamless transition. He goes from talking about Christ preaching in the days of Noah and then he goes on to say that there's this antitype. He actually uses the word antitupas, antitype. There's an antitype which now saves us. So he is going back to the Genesis narrative. He's saying that Noah was saved by the waters of the flood and that that was a typical baptism. Now I think you have to understand a whole theology of baptism. And what we have to understand is that when Jesus speaks about baptism, he speaks about water baptism, and he speaks about spirit baptism, and he speaks about his death on the cross as baptism. And that Jesus will speak about the baptism that he had to be baptized with at Calvary. It was a it was a bloody, fiery judgment that fell on the Lord Jesus. He was judged on the cross. Jesus, many, many, many years after he was baptized by john in the jordan said to his disciples i have a baptism to be baptized with he said to john and james are you willing to be baptized with the baptism i'm going to be baptized with and then he says and drink the cup that i'm going to drink so for jesus baptism equals judgment that brings salvation the cross is the baptism of jesus judgment That equals salvation. So Peter understands this. He gets this very well. He looks back at the flood narrative. He thinks about Noah being rejected, Christ preaching through him to people, and he says essentially that what Noah experienced in the salvation was a salvation through judgment. God judged the unbelieving world. God is going to judge this unbelieving world that hates Christianity, that hates Christ, that hates the church. Peter in 2 Peter will draw that analogy will say the world was once destroyed by water, but it will be destroyed by fire. Peter loves the flood narrative. He gets salvation through judgment. Now, that probably doesn't help you much, though, when Peter tells us that there's an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, notice verse 21, which corresponds to this. And then notice the little qualifying phrase, and this is so very important. Peter says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Peter is distinguishing between the sign of baptism and what it actually pointed to and signified. He is making, he is distinguishing. He is actually saying, baptism saves you, not water But what it actually pointed to, notice what he says, he says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is baptism, what happened was the filth of our hearts was washed away in judgment. When Jesus died, the filth, my sin, my corrupt nature, my fallen nature, all of my sinfulness, was judged at the cross. I have undergone a judgment baptism in the death of Jesus. And by the resurrection of Jesus, I, like Noah, I have been brought into a world of grace and new life, and so have you. Now, I know that this is deep and difficult and that it's complex, but I think God wants us to labor to understand, notice, that he says, baptism now saves you, and then he tells us, The answer of a good conscience through water baptism. No. He says the answer of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Having been subjected to him. I want us to just meditate on two things as we walk out of this tonight. One is that whatever we suffer, whatever we go through, whatever trials or afflictions we face, and we say, how can I go through this, and how is this going to be worth it, and why is this happening to me? If it's happening to us for doing good, if it's happening to us not because of evil we're doing, but we're suffering for good, we're suffering for the name of Christ, Peter would have you know that God means glory for his people. God is working all those things for their good. Remember that quote, William still said that whatever Satan's intention in the affliction or the trial or the persecution, God has a way of turning it to our good and that there's a blessing on the other side of it that we would never enjoy if we didn't go through the sufferings. It's not blasphemous to say this. If Jesus had not suffered, you and I would perish forever. We would never be saved. There would be no possibility of salvation. God would not get the glory of having all of his people with him forever, praising him and rejoicing. Jesus would not, as the God man, get the glory he gets as the mediator for having all authority over angels and over all principalities and all powers and rulers and nations. That his suffering, his suffering, was worth it to the nth degree that the greatest possible blessing that anyone could ever experience is now the reward of the Lord Jesus because of what he suffered. And Peter would have you know that he did that for you, both as an example and as a redeemer. I think that also Peter would encourage us that no matter um, no matter how many people reject the gospel you know i had somebody tell tell me this week in our congregation i don't know why i i keep hitting walls with people everybody i meet i never can get them i can never see anyone come to know the lord i never get to a place where they even want to come to church and i said to him i said you know you've got to keep praying and keep laboring but but multitudes will hear the son of god speaking by his spirit through his ministers, and they will never believe. But for you who believe, remember what Peter says, for you who believe, he is precious, and it is worth it. And you've got to keep pressing on, and you've got to keep trusting him, and you've got to know that just as he saved those eight in the ark, he is saving us, and he is bringing us to glory through what he did in his death, resurrection, and ascension for us. I hope that you'll be encouraged, I know this is a difficult passage, but I hope as you think about these things this week ahead, you'll be encouraged to worship the Lord Jesus for what he's done for you, and that you'll be encouraged to press on, even in the face of opposition and unbelief and persecution and hatred and and trial, knowing that God will bring the greatest good to his people in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please give us grace to take a portion of Scripture that is in some parts so difficult and so challenging, and we pray that you would give us um, spiritual benefit from it. We pray, our Father, that if all we take away is joy in the substitutionary death of the Savior and his glorious resurrection and our regeneration by his Spirit, and that you have cleansed our hearts and that you will bring us to glory where he is, that 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 is what you would comfort us with and build us up with and that you would cause fruit to be born in us. We pray, our Father, that you would increase our faith and give us a greater understanding as we go through this world with its trials and challenges, that you would give us hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.